It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year, 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup, featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet, playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like, and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner. They make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. It's our second playback episode for Series 3, where we're rewinding choice bits from Episodes 55 to 59. If you're new to the podcast, it's a great sampler, giving you a chance to really get a taste of the show. In these clips, we're exploring beyond the Aussie shores, from across the Tasman to New Zealand, all the way to the UK, as well as looking at the unfolding WNBL season and making some predictions. And then we look at the amazing fans of the league who tap into some amazing community spirit. Don't forget to like and subscribe. In the meantime, take a break and enjoy the ride. First out of the box is episode 55, recorded earlier in the season when games were rescheduled and rounds were postponed. Jacinta and I recapped some of the WNBL action to that time and got into the long game for the teams in the WNBL. It was also deja vu revisiting this episode as we watched the meteoric rise of Annalee Maley, now rightly this season's MVP, and the absolute powerhouse season Perth Lynx were kicking off. This is crystal ball gazing at its finest. Let's talk about the season. Let's talk about what's been going on with the games and so on. Let's start off with some of the numbers. From my point of view, it's good to see that Maley's absolutely nailing big numbers all over the shop because, you know, we called it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When we have had games, they've been, you know, if you take away some of the stuff that happened in the early rounds because people were obviously, you know, hadn't played for so long that you were right, some of the games were a bit bit rough. But what we have been seeing has been some amazing action. Obviously, that Perth-Adelaide game, the last one, was just amazing to watch. It was real edgy-seat stuff. Oh, that that Perth-Adelaide game was just like watching a grand final. I felt like we had watched the grand final. And, I mean, it was a great game to have uh, the last taste in our mouth before all the postponed games. But it was, oh, my God, it was so great. It was everyone that we expected to perform well performed well. Uh, Bench players from each team stepped up and performed well. And, I mean, we knew that Perth were going to be really competitive this season and we were all anticipating their first game because, you know, coming in uh, five what, five weeks after everyone else because of the WA COVID border restrictions and stuff. Yeah, five weeks. Um, But for me, that means like, uh, I mean, a bit of a false start. That could go either way. 
they could have, you know, been really clunky because they haven't got that proper game experience and there's only so much you can get at training and playing practice matches against the under-18 boys and stuff like that. So they could have come out really clunky or they could have come out like all guns blazing and that's thankfully exactly what they did. Like they, it was like they were just prime and ready to play. And it was, it was, you know, pretty disappointing for them. I can imagine that they lost. Um, But I was really, really impressed with Adelaide for holding on to get that win. You're right. Adelaide did an amazing job. They played really well. They were able to adjust. I think Perth started to get a little bit, a little bit ragged towards the end. That could have been just a lack of match conditioning. You know, as I was watching the game, I was thinking that if this team gets to the point where they're really, you know, match conditioned, you know, three or four four rounds down the road, they're going to be something to look out for. Uh, one of the ones that really impressed me was Scherf. Scherf really uh, stepped up and did the business. There was no question that she was there to play and she did an amazing job on the court. She looked way more comfortable than she has played in a long time. Like she, I remember when she was playing for the Caps and she was a little bit of a star on the rise when she was still playing for the Caps and she still did reasonably well. Then she spent a couple of years in Sydney and you could tell that she just wasn't 100% confident or comfortable with, with what she was doing. But watching her with Perth, like she was just so much more relaxed and a lot more in her element in that first game. So I feel like either the, the system works for her or she works for the system or perhaps the coaching staff have just kind of realised like how best to utilise Lauren Scherf under the basket in their team full of uh, all-star three-point shooters. Um, no, I was really, really happy for her. I was really glad that she played so well as well. Look, I'm sure... Having Nat Burton there in, in an assistant coach role, having played with her here in Sydney, would certainly make it a more comfortable transition for Scherf into the Perth system. But I also don't want to take away anything from uh, from Ryan Petrick. He was the assistant to Andy Stewart for an awful long time. There's been a lot of continuity at Perth in terms of coaching staff. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I didn't think of that. Um and Perth, both Perth clubs seem to be really good at that, you know, building the continuity from the coaching staff and then keeping core players around and, and kind of growing from there because it, it, even the Wildcats had the same coaching staff for a really long time. But, yeah, that's I think, can be beneficial not only because, you know, for the players' sense on the court, but I think also off the court and the culture and the expectations of what the players are kind of put upon every season then I feel like it's something, especially if you're a development player, then you're going into a roster spot um, that feels like a little bit more natural, of a bit more confident with what your job is when you turn up to work every day. It's not going to change from one second to the other. Watching Perth over a period of time, one of the things that I think is, is the case for them is that because there's been that, that level of continuity, there's a comfort level amongst the players. It's not like where you've got teams that are, okay, We've gone a couple of years. This hasn't quite worked out. Let's make wholesale changes to try and turn things around. And I think having that level of continuity helps to keep a stable team. And once, if the players feel confident in the stability of their team, you get better outcomes from them. Yeah, and I think like people got to remember that professional teams like this, you sometimes have to invest in that. Invest in. Um, the continuity and the culture and having the core players and stability and then letting that grow over a period of time. You can't expect to 
throw a bunch of players together that look good on paper and expect them to be champions overnight. I think you've you've got to you've got to grow it like you would um, anything else and be patient with it. And I think you'll end up yielding a lot a lot better results than what you would think. Like playing the like the long game. I know I'm using a lot of metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's true. I mean, I'm looking at the way that some of the, the, the teams have operated. You know, Adelaide, Adelaide who matched up so well with Perth, they've had a lot of continuity. I mean, Chris Lucas has been there for a few years now. There's a core of players that seems to have settled in. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. And to be fair, let's say that this is something that obviously the Flames have done by signing Shane Heal for, for three years to try and get that that stability and build their culture and build the team so that they can have a good solid run at the championship. Yeah, yeah, I think that's sensible because one year, you know, what are you going to do in one year? Two years, sometimes it takes you two years, you know, start to get to the point where you want the team to get. So I think three years is a much more reasonable and sensible, like in terms of prospect and planning for a team, I think that's a much more sensible time frame to sign players and, and coaches. Um, but I was going to ask you when we are talking about Perth before, we knew that uh, Marina Mabry was going to be joining the Lynx. You know, she her signing was announced quite a little while ago. And then Sammy's signing was only announced on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas to all of us basketball fans. What did you <laughs> – what was your initial reaction knowing they were going to be on the same team? Did you think that they were going to be, like, great together or do you think they would clash I think when you get to the point where you play at the level that they play, people are professionals. And look, this is one of the things that I'm a big believer in is if you've got a high performance team, whether it be in sports or in business, people are going to butt heads. Mm. Not because of anything else, but it's because they're the type of characters who want to get such a good outcome that they want to fight fiercely for what they believe is correct. And the difference between a really high-performing team and one that isn't quite there is you've got people who can have those fierce conversations but then walk away from it and leave the conflict behind. And I think, you know, that's where the skill of the head coach is to be able to get those people together, let them have those fierce conversations, but also manage it so that it doesn't become a toxic environment but it's it's a positive thing because what you've got is a lot of people with strong opinions, but all those opinions are aimed at trying to get to the same goal. There will be disagreements, no question. But I think what you're talking about in people like Sammy and Marina Mabry is that they will have strong opinions, and that's a good thing. And I think what we saw on the court was that you're not going to have people who are going to clash. They're going to work together to get those outcomes. Because, I mean, you can see you see it so often, and I wonder if I see it more often in male sport than female sport when you've got two very dominant dominant athletes in the same team, dominant in a sense where they're very talented. So you've got two very talented athletes that would be expected to lead the team in, in their wins and be the go-to person, you know, when the game gets down to the line. So, you know, you sometimes do see that those types of egos clash. But I agree. I think Sammy and Marina are going to be cut from the same cloth where they are going to be professionals. Um, and ultimately, I don't think either of them are going to care who gets 30 points one game, who gets 30 points the next game. As long as the team wins at the end of the day and they get a championship at the end, that's all that matters. Yeah. 
Uh, for sure. I think the whole team and coaching staff have got their eyes on the box of chocolates at the end of the road. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when, like, what you described as well, that's when it really shows that being an athlete is that's also part of the job. Like, you go to work, uh, you do your job what is one thing, but you also you got to, you've got to be assertive, you've got to set boundaries, you've got to take the emotion out of it because ultimately you're all working towards the same thing. And then when work's over, you can go and hang out and have Taco Tuesday like they did last week. Did you see that online? No, I didn't. Oh, there was this great Instagram story I think the Perth Lynx had posted of their Taco Tuesday. Now, Taco Tuesday famously started by LeBron James, but it was, oh, my gosh, this spread, it was you know, it's truly fit for a team of athletes. It <laughs> looks like, I mean, maybe it was some kind of like camera trickery, but it to me, it looks like a good three-meter-long table, just like edge to edge of taco ingredients with the whole team and coaching staff around at the Taco Tuesday. And I was like, oh, I'm a bit jealous. I want in on that. That looks like fun. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the thing. You can have your um, discussions on court and then off court have a taco because, you know, we won or we lost. And if we lost, we're going to still be sticking together. And that's pretty much what it's all about. Moving across the Tasman to New Zealand in episode 56, Bevan Murray, in his role as general manager of the Auckland Dream, talks to us about the Kiwi Hoops revolution that's about to unfold. Bevan explains the fractured state of New Zealand women's hoops and the beginnings of a new and emerging league that's going to change their hoops landscape forever. A topic that we're going to share more about in upcoming episodes, so don't forget to stay tuned. Just give us a quick recap about what the Women's uh, National League in New Zealand was like before these proposed changes. Sure. So previously, the women's competition's only been called the NBL for the last two years. And both those years have been heavily COVID affected. So 2021, we only got a week of our competition before we went into lockdown. So no real competition. And in 2020, because of lockdown, they they went to a single venue competition. So all the teams traveled to Auckland to play, the six tier one women's teams. And then in 2021, um, it was the same. They played at the same venue, expanded it a little bit, but again, it wasn't a, a true league. It was all played at one venue. So prior to 2020, uh, the league was called the WBC, the Women's Basketball Championship. And historically, that was played as tournament weekends. So the women's teams would travel to a single city and play a number of games. Then there might be a break of... Um, maybe three weeks or four weeks, then all the teams would travel to another city, play a few games. And this was totally amateur. And in some cases, women had to pay to play. And in those teams, they might have had to contribute towards airfares or accommodation or whatever. So totally amateur competition. After the 2017 season, the teams got together with Basketball New Zealand and said, hey, we need something that better respects the women's game. And they came up with a tiered system. So they, they had eight tier one women's teams and then a like a second division a tier two uh, competition as well and the rules around the tier one competition which you had to bid to to be one of those teams was that the it had to be fully funded the woman couldn't pay to play so that was kind of that that 2018 was kind of the start of 
of heading towards some kind of semi-professional league. In 2019, we had the first true home and away league, and that ended up in a, a pretty epic final um, between our Auckland Dream uh, woman and the Harbour Breeze. So two Harbour Breeze is a historically extremely strong basketball association and have had really strong programs. I think in that game from between the two teams in the grand final, there was 14 either current or former tall ferns. So it was talked about as one of the, the sort of best domestic women's games we've ever seen in New Zealand. And the game sort of lived up to the hype, uh, went to extra time. Dream came back from a 15-point uh, deficit in the last quarter to take it to extra time and, and were lucky enough to win. So that, that was kind of the foundation for what we thought was going to turn into something really great. And then the pandemic came. And so we had those two seasons where uh, we couldn't really have a legitimate competition because of lockdown and and, uh, the restrictions. Okay. There's obviously been a lot of evolution going on. And all of a sudden, particularly in the last, I don't know, month or so, really the announcements have come out. You guys have had pretty much a revolution. We've read through all the all the material, but I'd love to hear your opinion on exactly what's gone on now and how this is going to try and hopefully propel women's basketball forward in New Zealand. Yeah, it can only be described as a revolution, I think, because, you know, as a general manager of one of the teams, none of us really saw this coming. We didn't know it was in the wind. Um, we had a GM's meeting about a month ago and this was un- unveiled to us and I think generally everyone was really excited by it but there's challenges with that obviously the time frame is extremely tight so we had a two-week period between the EOI documentation coming out and that being due in um, and then out of those EOIs, uh, there's 10 bids gone through to the next stage, to the formal bid stage. So we've received a whole lot more documentation. Um, and then those bids have to be in uh, on January the 14th. So, wow, over Christmas. Yeah, over Christmas, trying to find investors, trying to find sponsors to include in your bid. Yeah, so really interesting times. Episode 57 found us joined by Cassie Breen and Darren Paul from the Kaz and Daz show, covering the UK WBBL, and they're also callers for the Manchester Mystics and the recently crowned champs, the London Lions. They give us an amazing insight into the British basketball scene. The levels of youth participation are similar to Australia, and so are the challenges of growing the sport and its visibility at the elite level. Kaz and Daz share their passion and involvement to help propel the sport and introduce us to the amazing female players in their league. The UK isn't generally known as a, a basketball country, but basketball here is the second highest participation sport in the country, isn't it? Down behind football. Um, so we have huge amounts of youth players so many different things going on um, and it just doesn't seem to translate into media coverage. I think you have to be kind of involved in it to be aware of it and that's probably one of the the areas that really needs a lot of development to be able to to spread the word about basketball because everyone that I take to a game and bring to a game who will watch it for the first time they're like this is this is super exciting the talent and the quality of these players is, is amazing and they come back and they want to come back and see it but they just don't know it's there 
And I think that's probably why it's, it's not reached you guys yet or any further. Yeah, I mean, internally within the country, it's almost a struggle to get that consistent coverage of the game within our own country, let alone going overseas now. Obviously, Australia, UK, that's a pretty natural link. They're far away. Same language, you know, such a no brainer. But like lack of consistent TV, even with the men's top tier league, it's bounced around all these different channels and networks and pay and free and all of these things and the women's side of things. Occasionally, we're getting the Friday Friday BBC games and they were tipping off at 5.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. I mean, for me, a working man, I'm barely getting done at that time. So I know it's not super convenient for people. So that's your marquee Friday night game and it's in the afternoon. So you start to see some of the issue that there has been within the UK and then getting outside of our own borders. I mean, that's I think that's where some of the difficulty comes from. That's something that we have been trying to to push, isn't it? When With our podcast, we've been trying to showcase the league that we have here and the talent that we have here um, just to try and get it out there so people are aware of what's going on. Yeah, and so one thing that, you know, a, a positive to take from the pandemic, obviously, is horrendous. There are very few. But one of the, the strides taken forward in the game in this country was every club had to step up immensely in terms of their presentation of their game so people could watch it. So streaming became a much more regular thing. When I started doing the streaming with Anglia Ruskin, who are like a Division One team, let's say, well, they are, <laughs> it was just audio only. And then it was like Facebook stream. So it wasn't amazing quality. And then all of a sudden, pandemic, everything got better in terms of being able to watch every single game that was happening, which made things a lot easier. And then this year, we've seen a little bit of a regression in that. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Some teams have been able to maintain that. Other teams have not been able to sustain that. And that's a real shame. Again, for me, I think that needs to come from above a little bit to you know support the teams to ensure that we can still get the games out to people and just give them away for free. There are, most of them are available on YouTube as it should be, in my opinion, because you want everybody to get eyes on the product. You do that within the country. Marquee games are now on Sky Sports, which is a pay channel. I think it's equivalent to Fox Sports in Australia, which is great. And they're giving away for free on YouTube as well. So you're getting that Sky presentation, which is amazing. Like you see them work on match day. It's phenomenal. But um, getting that presentation, the Razzmatazz, and it's free. I mean, that's, that's going to be a benefit building it internally within the country and people like Kaz and myself and Ads, uh, Mikey, Greg, all those people that if they hear this, they'll know who they are, who are doing really good work to promote the women's game, but it needs to happen at a higher, more consistent level internally. And then that can translate externally. There's a couple of things in that that really interested me. First of all, Sky Sports are putting it out there for free, which is really interesting because Fox Sports Australia has an, a streaming offshoot called KO and what they're doing is they're picking select games which they're putting out for free on their KO freebies but also a lot of games are behind a paywall. It, it's a bit of an issue for me because I get you want to have a broadcaster to support you but the moment you get behind a paywall or certainly in Australia there is a very small percentage of the population that's actually paying to watch. I think the number's still under 15% of the total population. And out of that 15%, there's an even smaller population that's watching women's basketball, let's say. So while it's great to have it out there, for us, one of the issues is the reach. But it sounds like Sky Sports have taken a different approach and said, right, well, it's behind the paywall, but also free. Uh, yeah, that's 
absolutely what they've done. Uh, they put it out on YouTube. I think it's on one of the free Sky channels. I think it's Sky Arena. Um, now, I don't have Sky. I don't pay for Sky myself. So I'm not so much of an expert on that. But yeah, and why you'd... And it's the same for the men's games. I believe that all the, the BBL games that they take, so they take men and like the finals for the women and they put them out and they don't put it behind a paywall because why would you? But the rest of the women's games... It's just clubs, you know, managing the best they can. So, you know, Kaz and Ad's doing what they're doing up in Manchester. Uh, we've got a great production team that work on our games up in London. When they're in the Copper Box, slightly different setup. When they play at their second venue in Barkin Abbey. So why are they playing in different venues? Is it just a scheduling thing or are they just trying to reach different segments of the population? For the Lions, when there's a, a men's and women's doubleheader, they'll play both games in the Copper Box Arena, which is this Olympic venue. When it's not, they'll have uh, the game in Barkin Abbey because that's where the availability is. So they're always able to get that venue if they need it, which is a much smaller venue. But that's always theirs because the Lions, despite being you know the biggest, one of the biggest teams in the country in terms of women's game, I think right now this season, the best team in the country by far, they don't own their venue. So they, they get availability when they get availability. And that's the same for the men's and the women's. For example, biggest game in their history for the women against Bourges, in Euro Cup that was played at Crystal Palace historic venue but is a long way from their home that's down in South London Lions are based in uh, East London for example and I think that's kind of a kind of common issue throughout the league isn't it venue availability I know the the Manchester Mystics that I do the commentary for they play out of um, the National Basketball Performance Centre where Team GB play and a couple of weekends ago there was a netball tournament that apparently had to have the centre over the basketball team. So the, the basketball team had to move and find another venue that was available at a, on the same day. That's not great. You've brought up netball now. So how does <laughs> so how do you guys find the natural competition between the two sports? We hear an awful lot about UK netball here. So what's basketball missed? <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't work in audio. Just... Threw my hands up and <laughs> exhaled rather dramatically. Do you know i I don't I don't know. It's the simple for me. It's the simple answer. But Kaz, go go ahead. I was going to say. So in, in my personal experience, when I was at school, I played netball. Um, when I asked if I could start a basketball team, I was told no, and I couldn't. So nobody at my school played basketball. Um, I'm a bit older than you know, so it was quite a while ago. But nobody played basketball at school. And I think netball is seen as a traditional British sport because basketball is an American sport, isn't it? And I think sometimes people want to, yeah, sometimes people want to say, oh, well, we're, we're really good at this sport. We're really good at netball, we're really good at football, but we don't really want to try anything too different. It's sometimes the impression that I get that people aren't as open to other other sports. I don't know why netball is as popular as it is and basketball hasn't been able to kind of follow some of the the template that they've chosen because we have netball teams that are playing down at Manchester Arena here which is one of the biggest arenas in the country and it won't be sold out to the 20,000 plus but it's a huge venue and they have tournaments over the weekend and things and it really they, they've tapped into something and it's on the TV a lot on BBC on the channels and Sky it just gets have great coverage of the the National League sorry Kaz but the, no. the Sky coverage over the Super League during the um, pandemic was absolutely phenomenal. It was better quality than the, what the WNBA did for their league when they were bubbled up. It was really stunning. Like, sorry to talk over you there. 
No, and I, I think uh, it is, and that's something basketball and netball always. When basketball does something really well in this country, there always seems to be something that netball have done just a bit better. So that's what happens to get the coverage in the 2018 Commonwealth Games. GB won silver uh, in basketball, highest have ever finished. Amazing tournament. And all I saw of the coverage, which is a wonderful, fantastic story in itself, was Jamel Anderson proposed to his girlfriend who played for the women's team. And that was the coverage. And it was an amazing, beautiful story. But there wasn't coverage of the achievement. And I think the netball team won gold. And that was all the sporting coverage that it got. And every time GB have done something in Eurobasket qualifiers or something, the netball team seemed to just have done something slightly a bit better and the media and the coverage goes to that. It's quite frustrating, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and with netball versus basketball as well. So when I went to school, I went to high school in the 2000s, boys played basketball and football, and that's primarily it. And girls would play netball and field hockey. Oh, and of course we played rugby because, you know, Wales. So <laughs> that was it. Like If a girl wanted to throw a ball through a hoop, they'd be out there playing netball rather than having the opportunity to play basketball. That isn't completely universal, but it is, I think, going to be a lot of the lived experience of a lot of people. So I, I coach at the where I work. I do some coaching and way more girls play netball than what we have in basketball. We're trying to grow that. We're trying to work on that every single every single day. Every time I see one of these kids, I'm like, basketball, I'll see you at basketball. But it's about, you know, giving opportunity to play. Again, it's a huge participation sport, probably more with males and females. And that's a balance that needs to be addressed. So you both touched on like how you were both first exposed to basketball or the barriers of accessing basketball, you know, since high school. What are the pathways for players in basketball over the UK? Because over here, we know, we have our basketball clubs in the community and you play representatives. So that's all outside of school. And generally the pathways through representative sport goes to, you know, you represent the region, then you represent your state and then that kind of follows up to the WNBL or the NBL but what are the pathways over in the UK to get to the WBBL? So a lot not all teams have um, an academy program um, so they'll get kids in when they're around 12 and kind of have an under 12s under 14s under 16s under 18s and sort of help guide them in that pathway to get into the senior WBBL team that's something that I know the Manchester Mystics do Nottingham Oakland's Seven Oaks, I think, as well, and Leicester, certainly. Uh, but I don't know if it's something that every team have. I think it's a goal for them too. So that's the the senior club pathway. We've got the England and GB pathways as well. And I think it gets a little bit more convoluted there. I don't know if you know a bit more about that than me, Darren. I think that is the primary pathway of like pick it up at a school or a local club and then maybe get funneled into an academy programme. Uh, we have like sixth form colleges attached to basketball. So you're talking about Leicester riders, the WBBL team, the WNBL team attached to them are the Loughborough student riders, which is you're going to have under 16s through university and like the odd, like mid 20 year old playing for them as of you to go into their WBBL team. And below them, you've also got the academies like um, Charnwood would be the Loughborough Leicester route. So you've got a, the ideal that they would like is you go to their like sixth form college from like 16 to 18, 19, then maybe onto their university, or if you're particularly good, like Holly Winterbimmels, go to America and go to a top flight university there. 
and or go through and play with their WBBL program. So the pathways are, are there. They're becoming much more uh, formalized, I think. That's been a lot of talk from the league over the last couple of years. But generally, I think that's how it works. And then you have the representation for playing for your region or your county and then playing the youth levels for England up to 16 and then GB upwards. And so is there a big university league happening over there as well that sits under the WBBL? Yeah, the Bucks League, I don't know if we'd call it big, but it is there and it is there for you know people who walk into a university and be like, I fancy playing basketball. And they might be able to get onto their basketball team. Whereas other schools recruit for basketball specifically. So come to our, like Loughborough, Anglia Ruskin is a good example. Uh, come here, play basketball, play for our National League team. In the case of Leicester, play for our WBBL team and play for our Bucks team. So you're getting more exposure to playing basketball in an organised setting to a decent quality. There's no coverage of Bucks. Zero coverage of Bucks. I will go and watch Bucks games for fun when I have a chance. But that's literally it. You might see the Bucks organization. So it's the British University College of Sport. I think that's what it stands for. They will send out their end of year results for sports, but it's across like every sport that gets played in college or universities. It sounds like there's a lot of pathways and it sounds like, I don't know, there's a lack of coordination between those pathways in some respects, because it's almost like somebody needs to grab this and try and funnel it into a more structured pathway because i mean you know you want to be able to get the kids early who like basketball and want to be able to play for gb and then know that okay if i follow this pathway i've got a chance to be able to get into a wbbl team or take a side path to college and then come back and be able to represent my country at world cup com games olympics am i reading that right or have i missed something in that i just i think you i'd agree with that yeah (laughs) i think you've hit the nail on the head Finally, in this playback, we look at episode 59, our first Hoops fan podcast, where we talk with Emma Groves and Brent Ford. They're passionate UC Caps fans that promote their beloved team to another level through their hype signs that we like to call fan art. It's a fascinating look into a growing Hoops subculture. The artistry of fans championing their favourite teams and players is so creative, and no matter which team you back, you got to admire their passion. What happens next through our connection is where fandom transcends sport to create a community in action. Getting our Bunce t-shirts was one of the highlights of the season for the Shooting the Breeze crew and helped raise awareness and much needed financial support for domestic violence services in Canberra, a cause Alex Bunton generously advocated in her return to the WNBL. Now, I, I'll make no secret of this, I think the designs you're coming up with would be great on T-shirts. And I'm sure, you know, that fans would pick them up because it's unique. It shows that you are a Caps fan in a very unique way. And the other thing is that hopefully it'll start other people wanting to try and do the same sort of thing. Not only, you know, for different players, say, at the Caps, but also at different clubs because – and it's no great secret, the merchandising within the WNBL is not great. And this is something that Jacinta and I have have had conversations about as well in the past. But seriously, this is the sort of thing that somebody walking down, I don't know, walking through Civic 
sees a T-shirt with bunts on it and, and, oh, what's that? Exactly. And I think um, you and I had mentioned on Twitter not the Jaws bunts but the previous one when it was um, Bear the Brunt, which obviously not as good as, uh, you know, on a T-shirt though, a catchy slogan. But the idea of um, if one person, you know, sees it or a kid is like, you know, saw it on the, because I think it got on, you know, one of the TV stream or whatever and, and was like, oh, mum, who's Bunce? Or, you know, oh, you know, who's this? And if one kid was like, who is this? And finds out and is then inspired to whatever, you know, go after something or, or hustle a bit harder or whatever, then that is fantastic. And if we can get, I guess, walking billboards or, pro- or promotions, then yeah. And obviously, I mean, as I mentioned, I did put quite a bit of work into that. So if we can... No, extend the life. And, and Bunce, I think, enjoyed it. So, yeah. I think that is the biggest challenge, yeah. though, Paul, what you're talking about is the merchandising for the WNBL. Like, I've got a Jade Melbourne jersey that I've ordered and it sort of didn't come, you know, it had holes in the, the number, which so I'm getting that sort of sorted. But it's just the options as well. There's no sort of, like, personalization outside of, of jerseys is sort of like, you know, you can get a hoodie or you can get tracksuit pants or a shirt and it's not something that I think sort of extends, you know. You could have like, you know, even like a hero's range. I think of one of my friends who's like a mad Caps fan, Lily Pedvin, and she actually started drawing players across the league and and sort of creating this sort of fan art that's a little bit different. Um, She did like Kelly Wilson for a 400th. But I think for her, it was just sort of a release and something that she started because, you know, outside of that, you don't know, if you don't follow this league, you don't know the players. I mean, you can see the the names on the jerseys. Actually being able to physically see these players and have them them drawn into an artwork and be able to see that artwork is quite amazing. And I think it's been quite receptive of the players across the league. It started with her sort of drawing Loz Nicholson and Steph Reed from the Flames, and it's sort of just grown from there. And it was even to the point where, you know, those players were in isolation due to COVID and she's, you know, shouting them coffee. So it's like a friendship thing that's that started just purely from her just creating the artwork. Which goes back to that point you were saying, Paul, about the players and the teams and the league more generally being more approachable, less this kind of, you know, barrier between the players and the fans. There is this sense of belonging and community. And there's certainly an appetite, I think, for merch. Like, you know, I would be kitted out with everything if it was available. Like, take my money. Let me sell a kidney, please. <laughs> I agree. Take it. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think that it's obviously presenting an opportunity for, for Are you it. trying to say something? Are you trying to? <laughs> no, no, not an opportunity for kidney sales, for more like for my own. This Are you going to have your own line? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I know. If Bunt's keen, you know I'd do it. Well, Look, to be really honest, look, the technology's out there for clubs and people to be able to do print on demand, okay? It can be done. It's not expensive. You know, it, it, there's Redbubble. There's a whole bunch of others like that. There are people who will print on T-shirts at real low runs for quite reasonable prices as well. So this is a sort of thing that I think needs to be explored by the clubs, by the fans, you know, to be able to try and get that wider expansion, uh, you know, people who know nothing about the WNBL, 
who's Bunce? That's a really interesting look and design on this T-shirt. I, I want to know more about it. This is the stuff that needs to be done. You know, up until now, it's really just a club singlet with, you know, customization of a name if need be. Exactly. It's right? like you, you um, take what you're given, which is pretty limited range. And it's also it also yeah. sort of, I guess, hamstrings people and, and fans because, you know, not everyone has $80 to be able to sling for a jersey. If you make, you know, shirts yeah. more accessible to people, and I think I look at like the WWE and I know that it's really commercial. You know, they have dolls, et cetera, of, of wrestlers. But the biggest thing is the personalization of the stars of the game and the wrestling is that they have them on T-shirts. It is huge. Exactly. And I, I'd said to Bunce when I was floating this idea of would you be okay with that Jaws Bunce design on a T-shirt and, you know, possibly several people walking around with that. And she loved it. but And I was also kind of like, oh, it's good. Like, you know, it can be a bit of a suvi or some merch for Opal when she grows up and she can be like, you know, you can say to her, oh, this was when mummy was becoming a cult hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it could be the start of the series. But, yeah, I, I like the idea of something that's yeah. a bit um, unique and novel and, and obviously has me a lot of meaning for me and then hopefully her and then, you know, get more people aboard. There is plenty of room on the Bunce bandwagon, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're the driver on yeah. the bus. Yeah, yeah. And- yeah, yeah, but see, this is the thing. I mean, actually, just the other day, I was looking at the merch site for one of the NFL clubs, and they do some really interesting stuff. You can get the merch customized with your name and your number, right? So you can pick the number that you want there. You, they'll put your name on it, and you can just order it online, and you can actually see how it's going to look online. Okay, guys, this stuff is not no. hard. You know, and this is what I, I really believe the league needs to kind of look at. It's like this stuff is not hard. The technology exists. The NFL is doing it. Yes, they probably paid a billion dollars to get it done, but now it's been done. So now that somebody knows, has seen what they do, surely we can do that. Yeah, there's some logistics behind it, but this is how you engage the fans. I mean, I know Jacinta was saying the, the I think it was today, the new Opals gear is unavailable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, it was, yeah, it's actually on Twitter again today. Um, honestly, the amount of time I've been spending on Twitter, which I initially used to hate, uh, it would, people would think I don't have a job. But, um, <laughs> but we were talking today, uh, someone posted the pic, first of all, the picture of the new Opals jerseys that they're going to be playing in. Uh, for this qualifying tournament, which I also learned on Twitter is QT. Anyway, learning a lot today. But uh, we were kind of thinking we love these green, and, like pure green and gold jerseys, really classic, like uh, kind of a bit old school design. And it's like, where can we buy them? Well, you can't. I mean, I own a pair of Boomer shorts from when I saw them play Team USA in Melbourne in 2019. I, I don't own any Opal stuff. Um, and then we were also talking as well about, again, it was Lily. So, Brent, I'm really glad that you gave Lily a shout-out because I was planning to because she's a good friend of the podcast as well. But it came up again on Twitter today about 
when we want to buy WNBA jerseys of our Australian players. Like I would love a New York Liberty jersey was sent for Sammy Whitcomb, Beck Allen, the equality version. But uh, the WNBA store doesn't ship to Australia. I, I know. You've I got actually, to get it by. I got a Liz Cambage one when she was playing for the Aces and I actually had to wait until a hmm. friend of mine was visiting her partner who lives in Kansas and I could get it shipped to her and then she brought it back to me. Like there's a lot of yeah. a lot of rigmarole. Yeah. For that jersey, but there is okay. that appetite there. People yeah. want it. Yeah, and I don't guys... want to pay $200 from Rebels. Okay. Now, next time you guys want to get something from the US, and if they are not, if it doesn't get shipped to Australia, there actually is a service where you can get it shipped to somebody in the US. They give you an, an address, a US address. I think it costs you like 10 bucks a month. They'll ship the gear there. So they'll hold it until they get a package of stuff big enough to make, you know, for the shipping to be uh, economical, and then they'll ship the whole lot to you. So you've actually got a U.S. address. So if you need that to get any of, that, any of that work. Well, think it's, still it's still madness though, isn't it? Like it just, it's like another oh, barrier for women's sport. Mm. And I, I remember the, the anger when the Matilda's jersey wasn't being sold or you couldn't get it in yep. a certain size. Or you can get like it in a, a women's size, I yeah, think. You like you can get, get the women's strip in a women's size. Yeah, I think it was being sold in, in men's yeah. sizes or something. It was very, very bizarre. But it, it's it's just that sort of barrier again. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, this is our national team um, that is going and playing. And, yeah. I mean, we're in a World Cup year. You know, the World Cup's, World Cup's going to be held and we can't yes. even get the – the strip of our, our home team, you know, I think that says a lot about the frustrations. I mean, I mean, as you guys would remember, we're only, I mean, this is like the first year I can remember where I can actually actively watch every single game without having to worry about like an internet stream. I remember you guys were doing like, you know, the streams for the, the flames and that was how you got access to the games. Otherwise you had to follow the box score and I would religiously like watch the box score and you'd be watching it go up and it'd be like, you know, two points for Griffin and then it'd be like two points for Talbot. And that's how I was watching games rather than actually watching the athletes on the court and have vision. It's kind of crazy to think this is where we're at and we're only at it now. Yeah, yeah. and it's like even going back to like the types of merch available, I understand that like you said before, Brent, a jersey is not always going to be suitable for everyone in terms of like, uh, wearability, like uh, unless I'm going to Sunday scrimmage with the boys, where am I going to wear a singlet? <laughs> like down there in a gym where no one's <laughs> going to know I'm wearing a basketball singlet anyway. But even something, yeah, it can be expensive, just something small like a key ring or a pair of socks. Like my a friend of mine, I'm lucky I've still got friends in the league and they gave me a pair of WNBL socks. And, look, tomorrow I'm going to be a 36-year-old grown-ass woman and I'm still getting psyched over a pair of WNBL socks. That's all. I am like, just give me some I socks. am in my 30s and I'm making signs. I mean. <laughs> but it's like give it's, us it's, retro, we're not asking for It's much. like give us a retro range. Like give us, you know, the, the Caps jersey from like the late 2000s. You know, the prime Harry Graff. Era, Ooh, I love a throwback. You know, even bring out the bodysuit or yeah. something. Oh, like yes. just bring it back. Bring <laughs> it back. Sell it. Make money. <laughs> People will buy it. If you like what you hear, take the time to go back. Get into these pods as well as others in our back catalogue.
Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.